Hello, friends in English 347, and welcome to week 10. It is a beautiful Easter Sunday here today, and I can think of no better time to be reading Whitman. Um, of course, Easter Sunday is all about uh, rebirth and resurrection, and so is Whitman. Um, the uh, Song of Myself is very much a poem about, about rebirth and renewal. And ultimately, I think it's a poem about uh, the soul's journey to enlightenment. So again, I feel like Easter Sunday, um, what is the grass, says Whitman. Um, go out in the grass and consider the grass as you read Leaves of Grass. At some point this week, we're supposed to have some lovely weather. Um, go outside and read Song of Myself outside in the grass. Um, Whitman himself instructs us to do this. As a matter of fact, in the preface to Leaves of Grass, um, there's a beautiful passage. The preface is kind of long and unwieldy, actually, and frankly, a little bit boring. Um, but there's this one gorgeous passage in Leaves of Grass. I, I Sorry, the preface to Leaves of Grass. I sent it to you last week on the day of Whitman's death, which is March 26th. Um, I, on that day, I was wearing my Pop Whitman shirt to commemorate Whitman. And um, I sent you a quote, and I think I'll read it. He says, this is what you shall do. Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence toward the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown, or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uned uneducated persons, and with the young, and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul, and your very flesh shall be a great poem, and have the richest fluency not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face, and between the lashes of your eyes, and in every motion and joint of your body. So there you go. He says, um, read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. So four times a year, once every season, winter, spring, summer, fall, go outside and read leaves of grass. It'll be good for your soul, says Whitman. Um, so here we are, 1855. Um, this guy that nobody's ever heard of, um, largely self-taught, um, has only, what, like a third grade education. Um, he's held a variety of different jobs and occupations throughout his life. Uh, he's been a, a, a builder, a carpenter, a journalist, um, a printmaker, um, a printer, I mean, um, a school teacher. He taught in a, several different um, schools in Long Island. Um, so here he comes. Um, completely unknown, and he has this uh, poem, uh, Song of Myself, 
which has he's written this poem which will completely alter the landscape of American poetry forever. Um, with the publication of that poem, Song of Myself, that is the beginning of free verse in American poetry. And that is actually the beginning of, of what we consider to be the modern era, the modern era of, of American poetry. So this week you're going to be reading that great poem, Song of Myself, largely considered Whitman's greatest work, a 52 section poem. Um, it's going to be quite a trudge um, for some of it, and I'm well aware of that. Um, it's hopefully going to be um, transcendent at, in places too. And I use that word transcendent purposely uh, because Whitman was very much influenced by the transcendentalists, the transcendentalist movement, and by Emerson, who was kind of the ringleader of the transcendentalists. Um, he was influenced by him in particular. He said of Emerson, I was simmering, simmering, simmering. Emerson brought me to a boil. Um, so Emerson, as, um, as I say, kind of the ringleader of the transcendentalists, um, is um, interested in also many of the things that, that Whitman is interested in. He's interested in nature. He's interested in human uh, communion with nature and being one with nature. Um, the transcendentalists in general, um, they didn't believe in the Christian trinity per se, or they, they tended to re reject uh, Christian dogma uh, for a more sort of universalist. In fact, um, uh, Emerson himself was a universalist Unitarian. So they have more of a kind of Unitarian kind of approach, a more secular approach um, to, to the divine. And they believe not in what they would call a God, but what they called an oversoul. And the oversoul was kind of this like universal consciousness that all living things belong to, and that all th living things return to upon death. And um, Whitman calls it, uh, Whitman calls death the merge, and he calls uh, this oversoul, he refers to it in places as the float. So in death, you merge with the float, okay? Um, so this poem, Song of Myself, very much influenced by transcendentalism, very much influenced by some Eastern ideologies. Um, we know that, that Whitman read the Vedas. Um, we suspect that he may have read some Buddhist texts as well. So he's familiar with um, Eastern philosophies. He's very familiar with the concept of reincarnation. Um, and he's, he's drawing on all of these ideas and philosophies and sort of creating his own personal religion. And ultimately, he wants to create this personal religion that becomes like a national religion that sort of encompasses all Americans um, from all walks of life, the freed, the freed person to the slave, um, the master to the slave. And... Um, the, that's what Leaves of Grass is, is trying to do. He actually called Leaves of Grass the new American Bible. And he genuinely believed that 
this book, publishing this book and distributing this book and having Americans read this book would help heal the divide in America and prevent the upcoming civil war. Um, of course, that didn't happen. Um, and as we'll see, um, Whitman, one of his brothers was actually injured in Virginia, in the, at the front in Virginia. And he got news of his brother's injury, but he didn't know how he was. So he went to go look for him. He went to go find his brother in Virginia, a wounded soldier. And what he saw there um, at the front um, so profoundly affected him that he ended up enlisting as a nurse in the Union Army and, um, and uh, um, treating soldiers in the war. And we're actually going to read, um, later on, we'll read one of his famous war poems, uh, The Wound Dresser. Beautiful, beautiful poem. Um, so quite an interesting life. Um, and we talked about last week, you read the articles, um, the three more recent articles, and you can see how even, you know, 160 years later, Whitman is still stirring up controversy, right? He's still, um, <laughs> I think he would like that, actually. I think he, he liked the controversy surrounding him in his day, and I think he would um, like the fact that there's still controversy surrounding him. Um, even now. Um, but thank you for your, your, your thoughtful responses. And um, I don't know, I, I feel like if you read my responses to your reflections, you'll kind of see where I stand on this issue, which is um, much more in line with the author of the CNN article who sort of tries to strike a middle ground to say, look, we have to understand who this author was um, within his historical context. Right, and I think it's much easier for us as contemporary readers to um, to look back at a, a historical figure and sort of separate them, the person from the work. Um, it's harder for us to do that as contemporary with contemporary artists, and I think that's why we have the cancel culture because we just can't. We're unable to do that. We're un unable to separate the person from the work. And like I th I'm thinking of, for example, um, J.K. Rowling is, is a good example of a wildly popular author whose transphobic comments have gotten her canceled as of late. Because again, we, it's, it's, it's impossible for us in this contemporary context as contemporary readers to separate what J.K. Rowling says about trans people with our love of the Harry Potter series, right? Um, I think of Woody Allen. That's another good example. Like he, uh, the the there's a wonderful HBO documentary um, about Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, and you know that's another example of a, a, a filmmaker whose movies I adore, but I'll never be able to watch another. Woody Allen film. And um, same with like Michael Jackson, you know, like Michael Jackson was like the soundtrack to my youth. You know, I grew up on Thriller and MTV, but I will never be able to hear another Michael Jackson song without feeling sad and angry and just generally triggered um, because of that, that documentary, that horrifying documentary, Finding Neverland. 
So anyway, um, again, this is something that I think we need to kind of grapple with um, throughout our study of Whitman, um, specifically, as I say, his documented racism, documented pedophilia. Um, we have to understand that at the time, um, there was no word for what Whitman was. There was no word for, for gay, for a gay person. There was no word for homosexuality. Homosexuality as a discourse didn't exist at all in Whitman's time, okay? So, I mean, of course it happened. Of course, there were gay people. There have always been gay people, right? From the beginning of time. But there was never a sort of official discourse around the concept of homosexuality until the end of the 19th century, right around Whitman's death, actually. So there was no word for what he was. And pedophilia, as we think of it today, like a sort of criminal offense, also, um, it was taboo, but it doesn't have the same kind of sort of associations with criminality, I think, that we, that we have today. So no doubt Whitman had relationships with, with young men, boys, sometimes underage boys. Um, there was an allegation which has never been completely proven, but has never been completely debunked either, um, that there was an incident involving a schoolboy at a Long Island school where Whitman taught, and Whitman was tarred and feathered and run out of town. Um, again, no definitive proof that that happened, but nobody's ever been able to claim that it absolutely didn't happen either. So, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, um, at some point we, we, we have to understand, we have to look at this figure in his particular context and we have to understand, particularly with the question of race in the 19th century, around the time of the Civil War, it's really important to understand that it was possible to be against slavery. It was possible to be an abolitionist, to believe that you shouldn't hold your fellow human beings in bondage and still believe that those human beings are somehow racially inferior. Um, and in fact, that, that in many places was the dominant attitude, right? So, I think we, again, we have to understand that, understand where he's coming from, understanding this free soil business. And remember, again, he, he started out a free soiler and then he gradually moved to the abolitionist movement. Actually, his, his thoughts on race kind of parallel Abraham Lincoln's um, in a way. Um, he, did, he, he was a supporter of the abolitionist movement. Um, but he also believed that that slaves couldn't be effectively integrated, freed slaves couldn't be effectively integrated into society. And he actually supported transporting slaves back to, freed slaves back to Africa because he didn't believe in integration. Um, so there you go. I mean, these, again, these were, these were the dominant, some of the dominant views of the time. Um, so we have to kind of, think about it, and place him and the work within that particular historical context. So on that note, back to Song of Myself. This is the long poem that you're going to read, hopefully outside a little bit this week. Um, and 
you have another required text that you'll begin this week by a poet named Mark Doty. Mark Doty is a contemporary poet and essayist, um, and this is his most recent work, which is part biography, part autobiography. Um, I wouldn't, I guess literary criticism, I guess you could call it literary criticism, but it's not critical in style. It's not the kind of scholarly writing that you may be accustomed to when you think of, you know, literary criticism. Remember, this is a poet, and he's writing about a poet, and he's writing from a poet's perspective. So I think you're going to find the work very lyrical. Um, Mark Doty is a gorgeous, gorgeous lyric poet. And um, I actually want to introduce you, because I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't know anything about the author of These Fever Days. Um, I'd never even heard of her before. Um, but she's a biographer, right? So that's probably why I haven't heard of her. She's not a famous poet. She's a biographer. Um, Mark Doty, on the other hand, is a famous poet and award-winning poet. He teaches, it says, in at Rutgers and lives in New York. Um, and of all the contemporary poets um, that I know, I think Mark Doty is the most Whitman-like. He's the most Whitmanian. He's the most clearly influenced by Whitman of all contemporary poets I know. So it seems perfectly appropriate that he would write a whole book about Walt Whitman and that he would try to understand Whitman um, through the lens of his own life and his own work. Um, so I've started it and I'm really pleased and I think that he's um, gonna be a much better guide to this poem than I will and he will probably hold your attention better than I will here in this podcast. Um, so I'm going to let you read the first five chapters of this book, What is the Grass? And I thought maybe I would just give you just a few highlights, um, because I did read the first section. So you're actually going to read part one, all of part one. And it sort of works out perfectly. Again, I didn't plan this. It just sort of happened. Um, but it works out perfectly because the first section is all about Song of Myself, the whole first section. A first part of the book is all the first five chapters, all about Song of Myself and about the soul's journey, which is what Song of Myself is about the soul's journey toward eternity. Um, that's it. It's about, it's about enlightenment, it's about finding enlightenment. And um, then the second section is all about sex. <laughs> So, and that's perfect because that's actually what um, we'll be reading next week, um, Whitman's Calamus poems, um, what poems celebrating the body, the physical body, physical love, so forth. Um, and then after that, the third section is about the city, democracy in the city. And that's exactly how I've ordered the poems for you on the syllabus as well. Um, so I think that this is going to follow the work really well, and it's going to—he's going to be Mark Doty is going to be a great companion to you um, throughout your study of Whitman. Um, so I'm interested to hear what you have to say about what is the grass. It's going to be, like I said, different from any other kind of 
biography you've read before because it's not straight biography. Not straight biography and it's not straight autobiography either. Um, I want to just read, I don't know, I think I've maybe just this one section. It's, um, it's in the preface and it's on page six. And it's the long paragraph in the middle of page six. He says, what poet ever addressed his readers so often and so directly? A digital scan of his work reveals the single word most used in his poetry is not the I we might have expected, but you, the spiraling, edgeless song of myself, his first great poem ends, I stop somewhere waiting for you. He waits for us because his poem requires us, because it is, it is no ordinary poem, in the usual sense of an aesthetic object complete in itself. It is a poem, a remarkable one, but it's also a call to change our way of seeing self and other, a persuasive text that aims to revise our understandings of the most basic things. The poem wants to accompany, accompany us in the direction of awakening. It, if it were written by practically anyone else, it would seem monumentally arrogant, the product of an ego without bounds. But Whitman instructs us that, I am not contained between my hat and my boot soles. This is the voice of a self without limit. And such a self must include, by nature, you. So uh, Dodi goes on later to say that that's basically the whole premise of, of this poem. He's trying to break down the boundary between self and other, between I and you, and to show you that we are in fact one, that every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. We are made of the same stuff, you and I. We are brothers and sisters in creation. Okay? So, as I say, um, Mark Doty is going to be an excellent guide. I can already tell because I'm already a third of the way through the book. And I'm reading this for the first time too, as you know. I've never read this before. Um, I thought I would introduce you to Mark Doty because you're going to be spending some time with him and you're going to be learning a little bit about him along the way because this is kind of an autobiographical text too. Um, so I'm going to give you one of my very favorite Mark Doty poems. And I find this just, the voice is so, um, I just love the, the power of this voice. Um, the unabashed, um, um, unrepentant sexuality that's on display here that is so Whitmanian in its um, impulse, in its impetus. Um, I can just hear Whitman through and through in this poem. And I think, I hope, maybe you will too. Um, it's called Homo Will Not Inherit, and it it is... I will um, tell you that it is an, an R-rated poem. It's got some pretty graphic sexual scenes in here. So here you go. Homo will not inherit. You can read along with me. Downtown anywhere, and between the royal of bathhouse steam. Up there, the linens, linens of joy and shame must be laundered again and again, all night. 
downtown anywhere, and between the column of feathering steam, unknotting itself thirty feet above the avenues, shimmered azaleas of gasoline. Between the steam and the ruin of the cinema paré, its own milky vacant marquee advertising its own milky vacancy, broken sh showcases sealed, ticket booth a hostage wrapped in tape and blast black plastic, captive in this zone of black-fronted bars and bookstores where there's nothing to read but longings, repetitive texts, where desires unpoliced or nearly so. Someone's posted a Xeroxed headshot of Jesus, permed, blonde, blurred at the edges, as though photographed through a greasy lens, and inked beside him in marker strokes. Homo will not inherit. Repent and be saved. I'll tell you what I'll inherit. The margins which have always been mine. Downtown after hours, when there's nothing left to buy. The dreaming shops turn in on themselves, seamless, intent on the perfection of display. The bodegas and offices lined up, impenetrable. Edges no one wants, no one's watching. Though the borders of the shadow zone mirror and dream of the shattered streets around it, are chartered by the police, and they are required, some nights, to redefine them. But not now, at twilight, permission's descending hour, early winter darkness pillared by smoldering plumes. The public cities ledgered and locked, but the secret cities boundless. From which do these tumbling towers arrive, arise, I'll tell you what I'll inherit. Steam and the blinding symmetry of some towering man. Fifteen minutes of forgetfulness incarnate. I've seen flame flicker around the edges of the body. Pentecostal. Evidence of inha inhabitation. And I have been possessed by, of the God myself. I have been the temporary apparition salving another. I have been his visitation. I say it without arrogance. I have been an angel for minutes at a time. And I have for hours believed, without judgment, without condemnation, that in each body, however obscured or recast, is the divine body, common, habitable, the way in a field of sunflowers you can see every blooms, the multiple expression of a single shining idea, which is the face hammered into joy. I'll tell you what I'll inherit. Stupidity, erasure, exile inside the chalked lines of the police, who must resemble what they punish, the exile you require of me. You who's posted this invitation to a heaven nobody wants. You who must be patrolled, who adore constraint. I'll tell you what I'll inherit. Not your pallid temple, but a real palace. The anticipated and actual memory. The moment flooded by skin and the knowledge of it. 
the gesture and its description. Do I need to say it? The flesh and the word. And I'll tell you, you who can't wait to abandon your body, what you want me to. Maybe something like you've imagined a dirty story. Years ago, in the baths, a man walked into steam, the gorgeous deep indigo of him gleaming, solid tight flanks, the intricately ridged abdomen. And after he invited me to his room, nudging his key toward me, as if perhaps I spoke another tongue and required the plainest of gestures, after we'd been, you understand, worshipping a while in his church, he said to me, I'm going to punish your mouth. I can't tell you what that did to me. My shame was redeemed then. I won't need to burn in the afterlife. It wasn't that he hurt me. More than that. The Spirit's transactions are enacted now. Here, no one needs your eternity. This failing city's radiant as any will ever know, paved with oily rainbow, charred gates, jeweled with tags, swoops of letters over letters, indecipherable, indecipherable as anything written by desire. I'm not ashamed to love Babylon's scrawl. How could I be? It's written on my face as much as on these walls. The city's inescapable, gorgeous, and on fire. I have my kingdom. Whew, what a poem, right? Um, I don't know if I did it justice, but I sure do love this poem. Um, I hear, again, so much Whitman. Hi again, folks, in 347. I just discovered if you go on longer than 30 minutes, this podcast website just cuts you off. I guess they figure nobody's going to listen after 30 minutes. So I should take that as my cue and probably shut up now. Um, and I'm going to let you listen to um, two of your classmates, actually. You've got a presentation by Andy on section six of Song of Myself. And you have a presentation by Steph on section... 24 of Song of Myself. Um, I'll just tell you quickly that section six is a really key section. It comes right after a very key section, section five. And Mark Doty talks about that section as kind of like germinating the rest of the book. Section five is kind of the moment from which all of the rest of the poem springs, including uh, section six, which is uh, sort of grows directly out of section five. Um, and section five is this, um, it's the moment of, actually it's the moment of enlightenment, but it's um, it's told through the metaphor of sex. It's actually a love scene. It's not your typical love scene. It's a love scene between the body and the soul. And in that moment of coupling, between the body and the soul, the poet sees God. And he, he achieves enlightenment in this sort of orgasmic kind of vision of the unity of the universe. And 
the self sort of falls away. The idea of the ego, the self, the individual self falls away and the poet realizes that he's one with all creation. For every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. So that's a really key section, section five. Um, section six is also a really key section where he introduces the metaphor of the grass, right? What is the grass? And he goes through a long list of what the grass is. Um, and Mark Doty notes the line, and now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. And he talks about what an incredible um, one-line stanza that is. Um, so there you go. Um, listen to those two presentations. Read Song of Myself, Au Dehors, which means outside, in the grass. Um, take along uh, Mark Doty as your companion, your guide to Whitman. He'll be a good one. I think you can trust him. And um, have fun this week. All right? I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.